Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And joining me today is the complex and multi-talented Miss George Zamaripa. Say hello, George. Sometimes I, I just want to hang up on you. <laughs> I, I, I definitely need a soundboard. I need all sorts of sound effects. Like, as soon as you start talking, I need something that's like an air horn. <laughs> Yeah, you need something that just goes, man. <laughs> I'm going to key this. I'm going to fuck. Kevin's playing around with AI. I'm going to have him build something that recognizes your voice. And every time uh, it, defect, it detects your voice pattern, uh, the emergency broadcast system is going to cut in. If this had been an actual George, this would have been followed by official instructions. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious! Oh, okay, uh, all right, we're 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 really screwing around with the listeners here. Let's let's get to it. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk <clears throat> today, if I can <clears throat> get my throat clear. Uh, we're going to talk today about something. Well, George and I have talked about this many times in the past, um, but w- we want to do it sort of in front of you. Um, we are both <laughs> we're both children of the '70s and early '80s, uh, and we're both very big fans of 1970s American horror films. And it's my judgment that the period from the 70s were the golden age, the peak of American horror. And <clears throat> I date it, I bookend that that era from 1969 with Rosemary's Baby to 1981 with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which of course was an adaptation of Stephen King's novel. And, and I think that the horror movies of the 70s are, are better than the movies in almost any other decade, partially because and it, a lot of this, this is going to be an interesting conversation. It'll be interesting to hear what all of you in the audience actually think about this. I don't know how much of this is because those movies looked and sounded like my childhood. Um, so I'm keying off that. Um, I'm sure that that's coloring my view in some way. But it seems to me that there, even though they were horror movies that had supernatural elements that you know not everybody believes are actually true, they strike me as incredibly realistic in a way that horror movies before and since have not seemed realistic. And to me, that's part of why they scared so much. What do you, George, what do you think about when you think about the movies of that era? You know, I, I think the reason that I tend to be such a fan of those, I think you, you, you touched on it already, which is there's something maybe nostalgic, uh, you know, from our childhood about it. But I, I think it's more than that. I think that it's, I think that was one of the, I think that was, we were starting to see, and into the '80s as well. We were, we were starting to. See, we only had films. The only way you could do films back then is if you built real sets. Mm-hmm. If you did, everything had to be real. You know, if the sound effects had to be something that people clang together, or 
um, created. There this was way before CGI and before AI and before anything um, you know that you could do digitally. And I, I just, I, I think that it, it lended a reality to the film that we've lost. Yeah, <clears throat> I agree. That's, that's definitely the case. Film broadly, uh, not just horror movies, but well, you see it in science fiction too. Um, this, the Star Trek movies are actually a great example of this. Um, if you look at, if you look at the Star Trek movies from the 1980s, um, through to maybe, oh, I think they, they really started changing over to the big, uh, CGI, uh, sometime in the 90s. But, uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, for example, is probably the best example of the highest quality physical model photography ever shown on screen. Um, the... The ship sequences, the both the, and of course this started out with the first Star Trek picture of uh, the beauty shots of the Enterprise getting refit and coming out of space dock, uh, but they reused some of that. But also the battle sequences in Star Trek Two uh, with the Reliant battling the Enterprise, those were physical models and they were big models. You know, we're talking like twelve foot long physical models, with a lot of detail, and a huge amount of physical real world detail to lighting and camera angles and it gave a sense of scale i mean you when you watch these things on a screen particularly a big screen you are convinced that you're looking at something that's actually the size of a cruise ship right i don't i don't get that feeling from most um uh from most uh, cgi created stuff you know what i mean Oh, absolutely. I know what you mean. I, I, I think I don't it, it just doesn't exist. You can tell the difference between I don't care how good something gets and I don't care how many times they tell us that you can't tell. I can tell. Yeah, um, I can tell that that smoke or that fog or whatever is not there. If that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, yeah, I can tell that that's that thing that they've created that's supposed to be moving in the background is not really there. Um, there's just something from the, you know, that old school magic of the movies. It's the thing that makes live theater magic. Because yes. live. Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, that I, you know, I just, in my opinion, has has gone away from for movie making yeah talking about what makes something realistic let me describe to you let's you know what let us start with let us start with the exorcist um what's the best way to get into this there's something about and it's not the only one uh, but it, it in my view in my view the two top highest quality canonical <clears throat> excuse me american horror films are the exorcist and the shining um i i realize people are going to have different opinions on this sort of thing and yes there are other movies that that come in my view very very close to that level of quality but those two are the ones that hit it over the top and th there's something about like the opening sequences in the exorcist when they are they're, the camera is just going through that neighborhood in Georgetown outside Washington, D.C. It's fall. 
the leaves have fallen off the trees and you can see the wind kicking up the piles of leaves as uh, school kids walk home, but it's also near Halloween. So you see kids walking around the neighborhood in Halloween costumes. And again, you know, given the era that it is, I, mean, I think The Exorcist was shot in 72 or 73. Um, I, I wasn't born until 74, but the world kind of looked like that for a few more years. Uh, but I just look at that and I get this sense of actual real place that I could see myself in the real world. And I had that sense even before. You remember, George, you and um, you and Dean and I took a trip to Georgetown. I don't know. Shit. It's probably more than 20 years ago now uh, to go see the famous Exorcist Stairs. And uh, to, to see the um, to see the house. So we we took that trip to D.C. and and we went to see the building, the house that that they actually used uh, for the exteriors uh, of The Exorcist, and and you know that's sort of a famous pilgrimage for anybody who's a fan of the movie, and it's a little um, you know they did a they did a few um, set additions to the outside of that house to to make it uh, fit the story, but you can go and see that place, and it and and it does seem real and. Even even more than that, even knowing that this was filmed in an actual location that's well known that anybody can walk down the street, just the whole setup, the fact that they the characters lived in that house, that you could see how to walk there through the streets, that it was just, you know, it was a luxury apartment, but it was a normal apartment. Um, there's just, there's an air of realism to it that I don't, I just don't get in many other movies, certainly not in modern movies. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. I don't think that you really get any of that um, at all in most modern movies. I feel like, uh, um, you know, and 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 this could be, this could be something that the director themselves wants to, director themselves wants to. Um, going for in terms of the feel of something, you know, wanting to create almost like its own world. But um, I don't think that's necessarily the case, because I think even even if you look at modern horror films, um, I think if you look even at something that's supposed to be taking place in every day, it doesn't it still feels disconnected. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> and that to me, that's um, that sense that this that this could be really happening, that it looks real and it sounds real, carries throughout the whole film. Because, of course, The Exorcist is a film about um, a girl on the cusp of adolescence, Reagan McNeil, who becomes possessed by the devil. And she ends up being confined to her bedroom after she goes to a number of hospitals and gets a number of really dramatic and invasive tests to figure out if she's got epilepsy or some other problem like that. Uh, but most of the action takes place in that bedroom. She ends up being literally tied to the bed uh, because she's the devil. And that's what you do with the devil. Uh, <laughs> you tie it to the bed. You tie it to the bed. Um, well, because if it gets out, if the devil gets out, then, you know, you do things like you go up into the attic with a candle that suddenly turns into a torch. and Nobody needs that. You know, poor Ellen <laughs> Burstyn. <laughs> But the most, oh 
the most extraordinary things happen in the film. There's there's telekinesis. There, you know, objects are are flying all over the place. The girl herself contorts her body into positions that, if they really happened, they break your back. Um, right. And I, I I don't know how it comes off. Well, I do I do know how this movie sadly comes off to uh, a lot of younger people. Uh, I'll admit that that their reaction irritates me. It really irks me. Uh, I've, I've seen them look at it and just start laughing. And I know I know that movies, every time, when you watch a movie from an era before you, like when I was a kid and I would watch movies that were made in the 50s, the generation before me. Um, yeah, they do seem stilted. Uh, they do seem less realistic. And I know that that's going to that's gonna carry down. But... I, I've seen this reaction from young people. The, the, the dialogue and the action in The Exorcist is, is literally shocking. The obscenity is shocking. Yes. Um, nothing like that had ever been shown on American film before. This, this was not part of that world. I mean, you know, this is a little girl possessed by the devil who starts violently masturbating with a pointed crucifix until her vagina starts bleeding. And then she shoves her mother's face in her vagina and says, lick me, lick me. I mean, this is extreme, you know? And I'm sorry, Zoomers, yeah, even considering the shit y'all are into on um, uh, OnlyFans, it's still extreme, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very extreme. And the... Um, you know, well, and this is why a film like The Exorcist had such a reaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why people were passing out, running out of the theaters in terror. You know, this is why people, you know, actually thought. I mean, there were there were there were claims from some, you know, religious sects that the devil himself was actually in the celluloid of the film itself. Right. Right. Um, you know. So um, that, I think, is what I mean, besides the fact that it was shocking and, and, and you know, film filmgoers really hadn't seen anything like that. Um, I think also the realism of it, again, is what makes it so shocking. You know, this wasn't something that was drawn. Somebody actually had to do that to film it. Yeah. Yeah. It happened um, in it happened in in the real world. The effects were almost all of the effects were practical effects. Um, right. And also, you know, I, I think it just occurred to me because somebody in the chat, um, uh, those of you who are listening, um, as we're recording this, uh, this is actually happening in Discord, our private Discord. So anybody who's a supporting member um, can jump behind the scenes. We've got a, a little space we call backstage here. So we've got some people in the audience listening in, and there's also a, uh, a chat box here, and I'm looking over the chat. And uh, one of our members said, uh, I like how older films took, pla uh, took place in places other than New York, Los Angeles, or a random third world country. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's something to that. But when I think about The Exorcist, I also think something that added to the realism was that it did take place. Maybe it's not the realism. You see a lot of modern horror films today. Uh, or spooky ghost films, and they take place in a house in the country. That's a, a well-worn trope. But this one took place in the city. 
It's it wasn't an isolated house that sits on twenty of its own wooded acres where no one can hear what's going on. It was in a building that had an attached apartment on the other side of the firewall. This was right on a city block. You could just you would just be walking by this on your way to school and you'd have no idea that Satan was up in there in that room. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It, it was well, and 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 I think that's exactly what Friedkin was going for, right? I mean, that when you when you watch the the original trailers for the film, you know that original trailer, of course, with the very famous shot of um, Max von Sydow arriving at night, right from yep. the cab, silhouetted by the light. street lamp. Correct, and you see that. But with that voiceover from those from the original trailers that said something is happening uh, beyond comprehension to a little girl in this house. Yes. Yep. And that's and I've, I think that's what's that that right there, just right there, something that's happening beyond comprehension to this little girl in this house, and a man has been sent for to try and stop it. Um. The fact that what you said right there is that this was a real street, a real city, Mm -hmm. (laughs) while people are just going about their business every day. um, I think it really did a great job of underlying how the most horrid manifestations of evil can be happening right under our nose. and We wouldn't even be aware of it. Absolutely. And that that brings us right into the second major theme that you and I have wanted to talk about, and that is what's actually going on? What is the horror in 70s horror films? And you and I, I think, both agree that the subtext of many of these really great 70s horror films was that the real horror was domestic horror. Um, Family dysfunction, alcoholism, child abuse, broken homes, um, adolescent mental illness, uh, the effect on children of adults who don't keep their covenants, keep their promises. So look at look at The Exorcist. Who who who, who are the characters there? You've got um, you've got Reagan McNeil, the daughter who becomes possessed. She's twelve years old. Uh, her mother, Chris McNeil, is a Hollywood actress. The character is a Hollywood actress, and. <laughs> she's they're they're filming these scenes on the campus of Georgetown University and <laughs> I it, 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 it's so modern because they've they've got Ellen Burstyn and I think she's a faculty member but she's joining in the student protest with the megaphones <laughs> <laughs> I love that part I, know. <laughs> I don't remember the dialogue but it was like down with the man <laughs> No, she gets up and she's like, she's, well, I I forget what the first line is. I do remember that she's like, hold it, hold it, because everyone's screaming. And then she's, she says something like, if you want to affect change, you have to do it within the system. That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Boo. Boo to the system. But so we've got oh we've got this 12-year-old girl who's who's just coming into the bloom of puberty. We've got her mother who's an actress and a divorcee. And we see these scenes where Ellen Burstyn is on the phone with obviously her ex-husband Reagan's father and she's furious at him because he can't be reached uh, long distance. He doesn't remember her birthdays, all these sorts of things. So we've got divorce, 
we've got um we've got a mother who has a really high powered career in the public eye and we've got a little girl an adolescent girl who's going to mental pieces correct so correct you know it seems to me whether it's intentional or not you know in in william peter blatty's uh book the exorcist or in freakin's film interpretation of it i see themes I mean, I just, you know, I see, well, because what do we have here? What is possession? And this is the cluster B connection. There's a lot of cluster B connections with these films. Um, Reagan McNeil gets possessed by the devil, but what have we talked about so many times before? That imagery of demonic possession, themes of demonic possession, uh, seduction by vampires, um, being haunted by the unquiet dead, the dead who won't stay dead, that it's really easy to read these as metaphors for personality disordered individuals, isn't it? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, they are allegories mm -hmm. about the, what happens to, to people, families, um, relationships when um, relationships are um, when relationships break down when there is like as you said before abuse needs you know alcoholism etc um, and I think these are again these are allegories about what happens um, in in families and to relationships that are um, that are fraught Yes, and and you know this is I'm I'm pulling out a lot of speculation here. Um, nobody has to take this as as sort of gospel truth. I'm I'm not necessarily taking it that way myself. But you know, substitute borderline personality disorder for demonic possession. Um, how how did the devil get in Reagan? What made Reagan vulnerable to the devil? Was it the divorce? Was it the was it the lack of a consistent well certain there's no father figure in the house at all uh and he barely remembers her birthday so the father has abandoned her her mother uh is incredibly busy with a career and isn't home very much what you know we know what happens to children who are actually in houses like this right this is this is psychologically deforming you know Maybe we can think of her demonic possession, the deterioration of her physical body, you know, her skin uh, begins to look like it's decomposing. She's got wounds all over herself. She's injured herself through that masturbatory behavior. Uh, aren't, aren't, aren't we looking at a supernatural version of cutting? Oh, uh, well, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly, um, that is exactly correct. And so, I'm not sure if you've watched this um, or if anyone um, listening today has watched the documentary called Leap of Faith. Um, no. It's a it's a very good documentary. Um, it was the last uh, film, uh, the last documentary shot um, with uh, with William Friedkin before he passed away. It was a couple years ago. Okay. And it's called Leap of Faith. Um, and it's William Friedkin on The Exorcist. He literally just talks for two hours about the making of this film. What does he say um, about, what's his, yeah, synopsize what he so, says. So one, well, there's a lot, but one of the things that he does say that relates exactly to what you just said 
Um, and he says this in, a, in one of the other documentaries as well. But um, he says that when they were going through the makeup testing for the for what Reagan was going to look like as the possession started and as it moved forward, um, he got the idea that the wounds on Reagan's face and on her body should be something that she did to herself. Uh-huh. Yes. And... Yes, and I don't see, I don't understand how you could watch this film knowing that that's what happens and not see the parallels in the the breakdown of the, uh, of the, the breakdown of the family. The breakdown of the family that causes the breakdown of her psyche. Correct. And... Correct. You know, and as you know, George, I mean, you're you're uh, you were raised Catholic. I was not. But as you know, uh, as I've gotten older, I think that a religious point of view and, and oftentimes a Catholic point of view gets to the psychological and human heart of an issue in a way that a lot of secular views don't. And. You know, I, I know that I, I can imagine that, you know, William Friedkin or William Peter Blatty might say this this is a this is a religious movie. This is a movie that is arguing that that the devil is real and that um, that he can get inside us. He can take over our lives if we're vulnerable to it. And I wouldn't gainsay them, but it, I can't help but think that, you know, for me as a non-believer, um, you know, I don't believe in an actual devil, but I use this language a lot. I describe things as demonic. I describe them as satanic because this the, the Christian and particularly the Catholic conception of evil and the devil and Satan are, I, I'm sorry, it's just simply flat synonymous with the kinds of distorted and wicked characters that we talk about on this show that people develop. Um, well... You know, we all know that childhood trauma, especially related to families, right? Sexual trauma, mm -hmm. any of those things. There's something about trauma that can crack a psyche so much. If you're looking at a film like this, that it's the crack is big enough for evil spirits to come in. Yes. I mean, I and again, I'm with you. I, you know me. I'm not a quote unquote believer necessarily but um i think it goes back to what you've said many times um in in prior podcasts and on the and on the show which is that you have a hard time believing that there is real evil yes there's there are real bad people i had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday about a situation that we're we're discussing um, going on right now. And I said about somebody um, to this person, I don't think, I think people, everybody wants to think that everyone has everyone else's best intentions. And I think that that comes from a good place. I do think that that's probably generally correct, but we have a hard time believing that there are other people out there who actually don't have other people's best intentions. They actually do yeah. want to harm people. Yes. 
Yeah, and and um, and people can say, and people often say, oh, well, if that's true, then it's only a small number of people. Well, a couple a couple answers to that. First of all, it's not a question of if it's true; it is true. But number right. two, uh, yeah, it can be a small number of people, but a small number of people is all it takes to cause real danger, right? Um, you know, when you're talking about people who are severely personality disordered, all it takes is one. All it takes is one mother with borderline personality disorder, one father with nar with malignant narcissism um, in a family, and that entire family is now a cluster B family. There's trauma in every single one of the members. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and let's, you know, we're in a couple of minutes, we're going to take a break and then do the second half of the show, but I want to say a couple of things first. We can get a little more Freudian, if you want, and take a look at how Reagan was rescued from this demonic possession. And what figure had to come into her life to rescue her? Yes. A priest, Father Marin, and then Father Karras, right? I mean, it just seems really obvious to me that there's this subtext going on that, you know, what's missing from this family unit is masculine shepherding, if you will. Mm -hmm. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? No, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I think the other thing, no, I think that's, that is correct. Um, you'll notice if you've, uh, you know, and again, I'm not necessarily talking about the book, but I'm talking about the film. Um, I, I don't know about you, Josh, but my favorite scene in the entire film, um, and I think a lot of people might might be surprised by this. I think the best, and, and I've changed my mind on this since because I've, I've watched it so many times, but as I get older, my favorite scene in that film is the scene where, um, where the mother, um, Chris McNeil, um, is visited by the detective. Mm-hmm. And he sits down in her at her table and she, you know, he's having a cup of coffee with her and they're sitting there across from each other at the table. And he's asking her questions about the death of, of her friend, Brooke, uh, uh, Brooks Denning, Brooke Dennings, right? Yeah. Yes. And the way it's shot and the way it's done is so masterful to me. Um, because you can tell, as the camera slowly pans into um, the detective as he's asking or talking to her, you can tell, and, and it's doing the same thing to, to, to Chris McNeil, as he's talking, she's realizing that he's telling her, mm -hmm. it's possible that your daughter pushed this man out of the window. Yes. Right? And and it's the the way it's shot is so good. Um, it's so and it and it's so quiet. Yes, it's right and it's literally before all hell breaks loose upstairs. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's such a masterful scene, and the reason I bring that up is because he is yet another male figure mm -hmm. in the story who comes in and who's trying to. Put the pieces together to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. well, uh, it is time for us to uh, take a quick break. Um, and on the other side, when we come back, George, I want 
Um, I, I want to talk about The Shining, um, but I, I want to let you start that conversation off and frame it. But I, I want to leave uh, the listeners with a funny. You know this story, George, um, but it's so good, I finally have to get it down on tape, so to speak. Picture it. Syracuse, New York, 1990. The, <laughs> the basement of a split-level ranch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm downstairs in my friend Michael's mom's house. Michael and I used to watch um, horror movies and Mommy Dearest over and over again, and we would just veg out in the, the finished basement, not not basement, the sunken lower level. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we'd watch this stuff over and over again. We were one night. The Exorcist was playing on WPIX Channel Eleven out of New York City, and back in those days, PIX was um, it had some original programming. It was before it became the WB, um, but it did a lot of reruns. You know, in those days, uh, you, you know, people caught a lot of feature films on television. Um, so they ran The Exorcist, but they had to run the uh, they had to cut it and dub over some of it to make it uh, broadcastable because there's so much profanity and uh, sexually charged imagery. So people, you know, some people don't believe me, but I swear to God, audience, this actually happened. I was there, okay? So they're getting into the scene where Reagan's getting hypnotized. They bring the hypnotist in because, you know, to see if, if she's, you know, if she's crazy. And he's hypnotizing her and all this stuff. And as she goes under, you know, the devil, Paizuzu, whoever, uh, you know, starts to speak out. And she's she starts, you know, moving around and her eyes roll up her head and she's all like, uh, uh, right? And, <laughs> and then she grabs the guy by the balls. <laughs> and... and uh, and, and the devil starts getting mad and thrashing around, thrashing around Reagan, you know, the devil. And um, oh, am I mixing these scenes up? I'm a, any, you are. I, okay, what scene, what scene does this actually happen in, George? Um, uh, there's the scene where I think you're mixing it up with the scene when, where they actually start the exorcism. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's, so they start. <laughs> they start the exorcism, and and these priests are, you know, they're chucking holy water at her, and you know, which the devil hates and everything, writhing around in bed. And in the real movie, she's saying something like, you know, "Fuck you, let Jesus fuck you." Blah 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 blah. This is what I see in here on screen. Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> I just grabbed Michael and I had, I'm like, did you hear what he just said? <laughs> oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> I like to think that that <laughs> the devil's like, well, even I have manners. Yeah, I know. Because you know, you know that down in the basement of WPIX, which of course was in Queens, not Manhattan, um, th some gay intern was down there just be like, I'm a dub this. Oh, I am. I'm a dub this. <laughs> 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 All right, it's time for a break. Oh, 
<laughs> oh, for Pete's sake, come back and see us after the break. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. And we are back. Welcome back. In the meantime, I'm looking over uh, George's interacting so graciously in the chat room uh, with the listeners here. He said, what are your thoughts about what we're talking about with horror films like The Exorcist and stuff? George, all I can hear in my head is... Um, Oh, what is the, what's the line I'm thinking of? What do you think, and how would you describe? <laughs> that was. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts, and how would you describe marriage between the soft drink king and the queen of Hollywood? <laughs> I told him I thought it would be a hell of a match. <laughs> oh, that's my pally. <laughs> pally, that's what he calls you. <laughs> he can't remember your name. <laughs> I think, uh, we've got to stop. Yes, this has been Mommy Dearest. Thank you. All right, George. Let's let's do The Shining. Actually, first, before we do The Shining, and I'm going to let you um, lead that conversation, let's list out the films that belong in this canon. So we've got The Exorcist, we've got The Shining, we've got Rosemary's Baby. Yes. What else do we have that hits the peak? I actually have one that's um, not from the 70s, that's more modern. Okay, that, well, that's irrelevant. That, what do you have from the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's not what I asked, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, from the 70s, uh... Carrie, Carrie. Oh, Carrie, yes. Why didn't I not think of Carrie? Hello, you've talked about it how many times? Mm -hmm. Incessantly. Incessantly. Intensely. Um, <laughs> yes, Carrie is absolutely one of them. And I do think that um, maybe not... The as, Omen, maybe? Oh, The Omen, absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. Um, I do think that there are... Um, I do think there are some, some tropes, although not done as well as films like The Exorcist, in some uh, of the early original slasher films. Okay. Um... I think that there are some of these tropes um, that you can see in stuff like Halloween. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you can see it in, um, in definitely in in the original Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, the mother was psychopath, um, and uh, yeah. So I, I definitely think there's are some there. Again, I don't think that they rise to the level of that, but I do think that there was something a little bit more interesting, at least. Yep. Um, to some of the origin stories of some of these uh, earlier films that just doesn't exist in most horror nowadays. Look at how concerned these movies were thematically. Look at the anxieties about children and adolescents. They're at the center of these Correct. movies. Correct. Rosemary's Baby, right? He has his father's eyes. We've yes. got um, Carrie. 
uh, is another uh, is another story you can read as an allegory of cluster B domestic abuse and a traumatized uh, minor girl. Um, obviously, we've got The Exorcist. Then, then we've got The Shining. You know, we've got six-year-old Danny Torrance um, doing The Shining. So, t- take take us take lead us into The Shining. So, um, I think it's important to note first of all that the '70s film version of The Shining um, was directed by Stanley Kubrick. And he really did change a lot of the story. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, in order to um, fit his vision of the film. And there are a lot of people who will argue, but frankly, I think he ne- it needed to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> um, but the story is basically about a, um, a young family um, who if the film is correct, and I don't remember if it's in the book as well, but live, live in Boulder, Colorado. And our, the, the father is a, uh, is an alcoholic and they have a little boy who, um, has had some problems. Um, and a, the father has a hard time keeping a job um, so there's definitely some domestic, there's definitely domestic, uh, there are domestic issues there. But um, he hears about this job uh, where he can be a caretaker during the winter time at this, um, at this mountain uh, hotel that closes up during the winter because it's just too, um, it's, it's too snowy, people can't get up there. So they close it down for the winter and then they open up in the spring. But they need somebody to be up there to be the caretaker to make sure that, you know, pipes don't freeze, just make sure everything's, uh, everything is okay until, um, uh, the springtime. So he goes up, uh, and gets interviewed for this job. He takes the job, he moves his wife and their little boy up there. And what basically, uh, turns out to, what turns out happening is that the, uh, the Overlook Hotel is haunted. Um, and it, um, uh, the family's really the family's issues, much like the exorcist become the door for these, um, ghosts or the hauntings to sort of come in and sort of rip the family apart. Um, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> that's how it is. And you, you were talking about how, uh, Kubrick changed a lot, uh, to fit his vision. And that's, and that's correct. I've read the book, Many times uh, I've seen the movie. I've seen one of the one of the later movie adaptations that Stephen King approved of. I think it was a television movie um, from the early '90s, if I remember correctly. There may have been uh, more than one of that as well. And yeah, um, Kubrick changed some plot points. He changed how the movie ended, and he definitely emphasized. It's very clear. Uh, it's one of our one of our members here in the Discord uh, just typed this, and she said, "I recently uh, saw The Shining again. I think it's. I also think it's an allegory for domestic abuse. Brilliant film. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very obviously an allegory for domestic abuse, and that really, this is interesting to me. It really pissed off Stephen King. Um, really pissed him off. He's been squawking about this since that that picture was made. Uh, he's gotten no less angry over the years either." Um, and I, I, I can understand that from 
you know, from a creator's point of view, an author's point of view, it's like, you know, that's not the story. I, it's not so different that it's a wholly different story. It's clearly the same story. But the emphasis is very heavy on, the, the you know, Jack Nicholson's character, the father, uh, Jack Torrance, uh, is an alcoholic, a dry alcoholic, but he's, he's having, um, his behavior is what people would call dry drunks. Um, and it's provoked by, by the ghosts in the hotel. He begins to act out toward his son and, and his wife in the same uh, uh, violent ways that he did when he was a drunk. Um, and the ghosts sort of precipitate that, but they're, they're taking advantage of something that already lives inside of him. Um, and uh, the thing about the shining, the shining for me, George, has that same degree of realism. And I know that realism sounds weird when we're talking about movies that are about demonic possession and objects that levitate, but it's not at all hard to you're sus, you dis you suspend your disbelief very easily watching these movies. You can believe while you're watching them that yes, this is the real world. I've been in that neighborhood in Georgetown. I, I've been by that hotel in Colorado. But yet supernatural horror is happening right here in this real place do you get that sense too right. yes absolutely and i think that he, you know again much like what um much like what friedkin was able to do with the exorcist with that sense of place mm -hmm. um with everything being very normal yes right? normal that's the thing that's going on is that it's it's a normal it's an ordinary day Sun has come up, people are on their way to work, people are driving, things are going on, but there's something going on in this house. And I think that's exactly, I think you get the same sort of sense from uh, The Shining, albeit um, it's more about isolation, right? Mm -hmm. You see that, that the the place is completely frozen over, there's all this snow. They're nobody snowed in, nobody can get anywhere, yep. Right. So there's this there's this sense of, of isolation, but it's still it's still just a snowy mountain resort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing necessarily. Uh, what's the word? Um, there's nothing uh, supernatural about the 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 setting where it's taking place. Correct. You know. The, the the naturalism it's naturalism that's what we're talking about and it's not it's it's definitely naturalistic sense of place but it's also naturalistic acting and and styling of the actors or lack of styling so one of the differences i see between modern and this is all modern films also horror but all modern films generally um Oh, Supply your own, not all. I know there are exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So, The Exorcist, Chris McNeil is a famous Hollywood actress. But she, she no more than any of the other characters, she's not presented as a confected, filtered, made-up goddess. She just looks like a normal woman. And when she's not on the set, she's just wearing normal woman clothes. She looks like any other middle-class mom. In The Shining, neither of them. Now, it's it's Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, 
and that little boy and the actor's name I can't remember is Danny Torrance. Um, that the opening scene, the opening uh, visual in The Shining is a helicopter shot uh, showing a tiny little car, a teeny, teeny, tiny little car winding its way up a very treacherous mountain road through the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and it's a little 1967 cream-colored VW Beetle. And then they get into the, then the camera gets inside the car and, and Danny, the little boy, is, is in the back seat, but he's hanging off um, the back of mom's front seat. You see the three of them in there. That was what my family looked like. We had that car. My mother and my stepfather were that age. I looked like Danny. I had that haircut. I had those shirts and sweaters. It, they they all looked absolutely real. You look they're, they're they're I mean if they're wearing makeup at all, it's 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 a little bit of powder. Nobody is made up. Nobody is wearing designer clothes. When you look at modern films today, even these even when the characters are supposed to be working class, and this is particularly the case with the women, the female characters, they style them. Even these supposedly working class down at heel women are wearing, they have perfect figures. They're wearing body hugging jeans so that you can see their hips and they've got mermaid hair. You know what I mean, George? Oh yeah, absolutely. They they um... they're, they're just perfect. They're perfectly made up. They've got perfect mermaid hair with perfect waves. And I'm supposed to believe you live in a trailer. I well, don't it's, believe it's, it. Right. We've we've lost the realism, right? Yeah. It's it actually reminds me of daytime soaps. <laughs> um, yeah. Somebody, you know, somebody gets in a car accident and then they're in the hospital, but they're made up. <laughs> yeah. so, or they or they fell asleep and they wake up the next morning and they like they they have lipstick and eyeshadow on. And yeah. It's and just, their pillowcase is not wearing lipstick and eyeshadow. Correct. It's not the Shroud of Turin underneath them. <laughs> <laughs> the Shroud of Turin. Because, you know, in real life, when that happens, when you when you fall asleep in your makeup and you wake up the next day, the, you don't wake up looking like that. What you do is you wake up and you go, Ugh. Then you look over, you see your face on the pillow, you roll over and you mash that, that pillowcase onto your face, you press your face back on. That's what you do to see. <laughs> If you really want it to stay, you press it, you know, iron on. Um, but iron on, get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, so The Shining, you know, is, is obviously about, about domestic abuse, uh, primarily. And I, I think it's really. Another thing that interests me, I, I mean, obviously it's it's coming from a sense of personal connection, but the little boy, Danny, who, you know, in the story turns out to be psychic. He, the Shining refers to um, a quality that he has. He shines. That means that he can he can hear other people's thoughts. He can communicate with the, the tiny minority of other people who are also able to telepathically communicate. But he's what you might what you might call a sensitive. I think they use that word a lot. You know, he he sees ghosts that other people don't see. Uh, or he sees them more quickly. And what's really interesting about the characterization of that little boy is the more frightening, intense things become between his parents and the more frightening 
uh, the ho- the more obvious the hotel's supernatural influence is. The more this kid retreats into if if you weren't going to believe the story literally, you know that he's that he's got this magical friend called um, uh, Tony that he talks to inside his head. If you if you take it metaphorically rather than literally in the story, you see a kid who's retreating into a fantasy world all his own. He's he's removing himself from the world. There's something realistic about that. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's uh, it's absolutely a I think that I, I think that you you can definitely see that that he, as you said, is escaping escaping the reality of his of his world. But I and I I also think that that part of what's happening too is um, I also think that they're trying to warn him. Um, I also think that he's being warned yes. of the consequences of what will happen um, to his family if if he doesn't get help. Yeah. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. Because his 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 inner friend, his psychic friend Tony, um, shows him sometimes previews of the future. And they're not always, it's not always like, well, your, your dad is going to try to kill your mom, but he'll, he'll try to show him things through flashes of violence that, that occurred in the hotel before. And I may, I'm, I think I'm mixing up uh, a little bit of what I know from the book with, with the movie as well. So people who have only seen the movie, um, you know, sorry about that. Um, but the, the Shelley Duvall character <clears throat> is interesting as well. It's a really, in in some ways, it's a really accurate portrait of a browbeaten, terrified, and submissive wife who's got a violent husband. Yes. Um, there's there's a lot of realism in that, but something I don't see discussed a lot when people talk about this film in films like it. Well, no, let's just talk about this film. Um, you know, Wendy Torrance, Shelley Duvall's character, is. Unfortunately, she and her son are paying the price for her willful blindness for a long time because she's already seen what her husband can do. She's, you know, and again, I guess this isn't in, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to move between the two of them. I know this isn't in the movie. I don't think it's in the movie. George, correct me if I'm wrong. But in the book, certainly, um, uh, we are we are aware of an incident when Jack Torrance, the dad, is drunk, um, and he gets angry at his little boy Danny for interrupting him while he's writing, and he manhandles him and he throws him and he breaks his arm. So we I, right, we I already know. I think that's it may movie. not be in the movie. Yeah, but Go but on. we we something. know we don't have to be told explicitly. We can see it in the beginning of the movie in that in that introductory sequence. Uh, the, the the helicopter shot that shows the Volkswagen going up the mountain and then the camera goes in there, you can already see the brittle tension between Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson in the car. You can already see that this marriage is in danger. Right. You know, because of Jack Nicholson, well, because of their acting. You know, she's afraid to push him. She doesn't want to speak very loudly. She's a very gentle voice. Um, he's showing barely concealed irritation, Right. You know it's a powder keg right from the beginning. 
So, you know, there's something to reflect on there about when you've already seen the danger, when the danger's already happened, the longer you wait and the more you stay there, the, the more danger you're going to be in. Well, and I think that, I, you know, there's that scene um, toward the end of the film, which is as it's co- sort of coming to its climax, um, when she's, when they, they have that um, interaction in the sort of gaming room where he's been doing all of his typing, right? Mm-hmm. And she finds all the, 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 the big list of, you know, um, all the papers that he's supposedly been working on all this time. And, and it just says the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, right? Yep. Um, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, and I, if you remember what's happening, I mean, she gets, she's, she's afraid of him, but yep. at the same time, um, I, I think you I think you find that the things that would calm him down in the past no longer calm him down yes so she's trying to be like you know yeah she she like, brings him a sandwich she speaks to him really nicely she walks softly right. into the room and and it seems like to the degree that she's trying to be considerate that's what makes him angry correct correct well and there's that there's that in that scene when he's screaming at her and she's crying and she's like, I'm going to go now. Yep. Right. It's, you know, she's at her wits end. There's nothing she can do. Right. He's being taken over so much. She's there's, and I think that that's, that's a great metaphor for how abuse, you know, ratchets up more and more and more within within relationships right yeah to the point where you can no longer appease the person because they're going to get you in the end anyway yeah it's i've it's it's i've seen the movie so many times but it's some of those scenes are still very difficult for me to take because although i've spoken a lot about my childhood history the way my mother and stepfather related the violence that happened in that house the fact that my stepfather Um, beat me and beat my mother and one night tried to murder her and I've also said you know that that my parents as it were are a very good example of the 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 classic dyad that people find themselves in Um, the the woman with borderline personality disorder and the husband um, I I don't know where to put my stepfather it's definitely cluster B he's cluster B as well Um, I, I, I want to say narcissistic, but but actually there's there's some there's some good evidence that 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 he had some some real borderline traits himself. But when men do, I mean, men's violence, men, men are more violent than women. And those scenes where, you know, I mean, those scenes where Shelley Duvall is trying to, like you said, trying to calm him down and it's not working and she starts crying. I mean, it really reminds me of some of the fights between my mother and my stepfather. In that sense, at least to me, it was very realistic. Yes. And I, and I, I think the, 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 and maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into this again, but I I think that maybe that's why films like Exorcist and The Shining and even Rosemary's Baby to a certain extent, um, are are scary because again, there's the naturalism, right? Again, but it hits just a little too close to home. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, too close to home, but that's what makes them so effective. That's why we're talking about Correct. them today, however many decades later. You know, Correct. these are movies. These are movies that are. They're art. They're not just movies. They're art. Um, yes. Both because they succeed in two ways. They succeed as naturalistic portrayals, allegories of, of real um, family and psychological dysfunction. But they also, and maybe it's the combination of the two that makes both of them work, but they also make the supernatural horror feel absolutely possible and real. You know, and I get that from, frankly, I I get that from Stephen King's um, the first his earlier work. His, I think he did his best work as a writer in the seventies and probably the first half to the mid eighties. Carrie was his first book, then Salem's Lot, which is uh, hands down the premier vampire story next to Dracula. Um. Uh, so Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, uh, Cujo, um, when I read his books as a younger man, um, I was, I wasn't aware of them the way I can, I can analyze these, these themes now, but I think they scared me because they were, even though the most extraordinary supernatural things happened, they were realistic as hell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, I think I told you, and this is kind of a funny story. Growing, I grew up in a Catholic family, so the exorcist scared the piss out of me. Mm -hmm. Scared the hell out of me, too. For two weeks, I wouldn't shut the light off when I slept. I was terrified. Absolutely not. I was terrified of that film. And it's only probably within the last 10 years that I've been able to not be freaked out by that film. I mean, even though I would watch it again, it would still kind of just, I'd have a hard time falling asleep. Yeah. Um, afterwards. Um, now I see it, now that I've seen it, or what I think it, what I think it's a story about, it's less about demonic possession and more, like I said, more about the, um, you know, the breakdown of, of, of a family. Now I see it, like you said, it's more of an art piece and I've been able to really watch it um, I hope through the eyes of somebody who's looking at it, you know, and just seeing it for what a masterpiece of direction it is. Um, and it really is. I think I told you we got to see it um, on the big screen uh, two years ago. They, yep. They re-released it. Um, uh, and we were able to see it on the big screen. And I actually, I was moved during it. Yeah. Not not scared, but actually moved. Um Emotionally, because it was—it's such a good film, um, and and I saw it it through eyes I think I'd never seen it before, where I actually was like, you know, um, Ellen Burstyn really was a traumatized mother who was yes. trying to help her daughter. She didn't understand what was going on, um, and you really feel for her when she's at her wits end, just mm -hmm. trying to find somebody to help her daughter. Um, uh, you know, and well, it's, it's expressed in you and I make jokes about this. You know, we use this line as a joke all the time, but there's something really serious to it. And that it's, it's that moment. Who is she talking to? Is she talking to 
to Karis. Is she talking to a psychiatrist? She's in a park and uh, somebody, whoever she's talking to says something like, you know, well, we still think maybe it's epilepsy or, you know, something else is going on. And she just loses it. And she says, did you see her or not? She's acting like she's fucking out of her mind, split personality or something. It just hits you. It's just, she's just like, did you see her or not? Yes. Well, and you and I have used that, you and I in our private conversations when we're talking about, when we've talked about a number of of situations or issues of whatever, we've used that line. Because I think that, you know, not to take this further out, but so much of what's going on in our society right now, people don't want you to see what's going on. They want you to avoid the truth. And so I'm not saying that that's what the doctors are doing here, but it's 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 in the in the exorcist. But it's such a great example where you're just so pushed to your limits sometimes that you want to be like, what do you not see what's in front of your face? Right. Were we not in the (laughs) same room? Did you not just see what I saw? Because I know that you did. I think we say it a lot in our private conversations because I feel that way a lot. I feel that way on this show. You know, when I talk about how people just accept new normal, they accept the rudeness, they accept, they accept the extraordinary lies. I mean, we're, we're living in an era where people literally call men, women and women, men, and they get upset with you if you, if your eyebrow twitches. If, if, if they notice that you've noticed something is wrong. And I'm like, did you see her or not? Yes. Because we, uh, yes, yes, see, now I'm getting frustrated now just thinking about it. Um, we're, I think also, one of the reasons, if, if you and I are right in, in how we read these 70s films, it's really a reflection of, of the cultural anxieties of the time, obviously. I mean, that's such a trite statement. All movies are to some degree. But you can see what's going on here. So you've got the 1950s. You've got World War II in the 40s. Um, mm-hmm. Then we, you know, the Allies win World War II. Mm-hmm. The consumer economy in the United States goes haywire. We've, we have right. ramped up production. Wartime production gets immediately put into fabulous new cars, fabulous new washing machines, fabulous new um, uh, electric televisions, you know, all of this stuff, right? So we've got this bounty of labor-saving and entertainment devices to fit out our suburban homes. The ideal is, you know, uh, Ward Cleaver gets up in the morning, puts his suit on, takes his briefcase and goes to the office and... June Cleaver puts her heels and pearls on and starts making apple cake and, uh, you know, sues the beaver when he skins his knees, et cetera, et cetera. So we we have this happy, wholesome nuclear family where divorce never happens. Then the 60s come along and the young people in the 60s say, fuck everything. Fuck the man. Fuck the system. Don't trust anybody over 30. Uh, You know, tune in, drop out. So just a complete reaction against the at least perceived stability, but also perceived bondage of of the roles of the 1950s. I say perceived because I don't think it was nearly as bad as people act like it was. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of it was actually quite good. Um, and in the 70s, that's your decade for, okay, now we have to ruminate on it. What does this mean? 
what just happened in the past 20 years? What's happening to our children? How are we supposed to be families? Well, the summer of the summer of love, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or the, the you know the hippie movement, which was supposed to be all about peace and love, turned into you know Altamont. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it you know it turned into it became Vietnam. It became mm-hmm. uh, you know um, turned into hell. Yeah. <laughs> is what it did. Um, and, you know, and I know that there are people out there who will, all, who will include the sexual revolution in that as well. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, and I think, you know, I absolutely agree with you that I think the seventies was this sort of like reckoning with what the hell just happened and what's going on and how has it affected us? Well, we didn't reckon um, very well, did we? Um, we didn't, did we didn't reckon with anything. We ruminated. We talked about it. We gazed at our navels. I mean, there's a reason why people called the 70s the me decade, although uh, modern times has so far outstripped the narcissism of the 70s. I don't even think it's a contest anymore. Um, but then we got the 80s and there were a lot of fun. You know, you and I have reminisced a lot about the 80s. That was our decade. That's when we were adolescents. Um, and there was there was comparatively a lot good there, but there was a lot shit too. Uh, the greed... Uh, the consumerism, it, it was like the 1950s raised to the exponent of three, right? Um, and hedonism, hedonism and debauchery, sexual debauchery, consumerist debauchery, uh, libertinism, both sexually and in terms of consumption, in terms of shallow relationships, shallow, shallow political commitments has only gotten worse. So we could have reckoned and I think people were trying to reckon and ruminate in the seventies, but I don't think we got, I don't think we finished the work. I would agree with you. I don't think that's it. Oh, one of the other directors and it's, it's, it's Carrie, Brian De Palma. Yes. <laughs> no, Brian De Palma's, you know, very much one of those people from the seventies who I think was reckoning with that in his films. Oh, for sure. And, and, uh, you know, I've talked about care. I talked about Carrie, a lot in an episode from a couple of years ago, so I, mm-hmm. I don't want to belabor that. But I also consider I, can, right. I consider that movie um, maybe a millimeter. It's a millimeter away from the quality of of The Exorcist and The Shot. I mean, really, for me, it's the trifecta. I do think Carrie Carrie is also art, um, and it's and 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 it's about, in my view, um, it's it, it is. Of all of them, it is most directly about um, cluster B upbringing. Margaret White was a deranged borderline. I don't think borderline was all that she had wrong with her, but I think that was her main problem. Uh, you know, people are like, oh, she was a religious fanatic. No, 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 no. No. The issue is never the issue. The issue is the person's individual disordered psychology and where it came from. But whether it expresses itself in religion or in shopping addiction or in sexual addiction, these are just symptomatic expressions. It's it's if she weren't a religious fanatic, she would have been a fanatic in some other way, right? And right. look what happened to her daughter. Look what happened, you know, because of her fucked up psychosexual drama, the fact that she could not reconcile her own sexuality as a young woman uh, when she had sex out of wedlock um, and she never ended up marrying Carrie's father um, 
I mean, it's just it's it's a classic examination of of, of trauma induced cluster B um, inducing extreme trauma in the next generation. Right. Oh, All right. We have gone on for more than an hour, and I could do this for two more hours because it's so interesting, and you're my favorite person to talk to about this, George. Uh, but I think we got to bring it to a close here. And um, thank you for playing um, movie critic night with me. I've been wanting to do this with you for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really, really fun. Um, can I uh, can I end by, by giving a... a, a uh, a suggestion for something to watch that's modern. Oh yeah, please. Um, I've talked to you about this, and I actually don't know if you've seen it before, but I actually think the film Hereditary was brilliant. Oh right, is that um, the one with Tony Collette? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have seen it, but um, I think when I saw it, it was my last two months of my professional career as an alcoholic, and I don't remember a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Hereditary is brilliant for a lot of the same reasons that these films we've been talking about are. I think it is absolutely a family psychological, is a family breakdown film, and it is done extremely well. Well, hey, you know what? That sounds like a great one for disaffected movie night here on the Discord, too. Ugh. We should do that. It's a, it's a tough one. Absolutely. Oh, I think, you know what? I'm not going to say it during the recording because I think I remember a scene in there. I think it was the most horrifying scene I've ever seen in my life. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yes. Oh, it it's so horrible. I don't know if I can watch it again. <laughs> Which means I'm definitely going to watch it again. <laughs> I was going to say, that's what you got to do. That means you got to watch it. And that, my friends, has been Disaffected. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.